Welcome back this evening to Sunday night study. I'm glad that you're here and want to and continue to encourage you to not just read and study God's Word, uh, but to apply it into your life. As we talked about this morning, it is the obedience that makes the difference. It is the doing and not the knowing that makes Christianity change us and change others. You're going to turn back to Luke chapter 6, where we started at the end this morning, and I thought for this evening we would talk specifically about some ways that we can put into practice what Jesus has called us to do. In uh, Matthew, Jesus famously asked Peter, who do, you, who do people say that the Son of Man is? And they said, some say John the Baptist, others Elijah, others Jeremiah or one of the prophets. And he said to them, but who do you say that I am? And Simon Peter replied, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. And Jesus answered him, Blessed are you, Simon, son of Jonah, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in, who is in heaven. I tell you that you are Peter. The original word means, you've heard this before, small rock. Okay? He's not saying build the church on Peter. He is saying, you're, you're Peter, you're Petra, you're, you're small, uh, a stone in comparison. But I tell you that on this rock, uh, the Petras, the, the large rock, the foundation, we might say, the confession that he just made, that you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. But on this rock, I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven, and whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. So, here, Jesus uh, wants to know what people are saying. As we talked about this morning, the world, to some degree, really loves Jesus as long as he stays in a very restrictive box. But, and this was true back in Jesus' day, there were many opinions on who Jesus really was. Was he just another rabbi? Was he a prophet? Was he Moses? Was he Jeremiah? Or was he the Messiah? And, of course, Jesus heard or knew the scuttlebutt about what people were saying about him, what he really wanted to know was what Peter believed. Who do you say that I am? It's a good question. For Peter, it's an even better question for us. Who do you say that Jesus is? Uh, Jesus is Lord. Hmm? Yeah, I would expect you to say that on Sunday night. I would expect you to say that amongst group of believers. But who do you say Jesus is the other 166 hours of the week? On your job, with your family, with friends and neighbors, perfect strangers, who do you say that Jesus is? It's important to think about, and as we talked about this morning, is proven by our actions more than our words. Peter famously was martyred on a cross and was by request crucified upside down because he considered himself unworthy to be crucified as his Lord was. 
Peter lived the rest of his life in full commitment to the idea that Jesus was indeed Lord. Now, did Peter do it perfectly? Of course not. We know he messed up three specific times when he denied Jesus. But of course, Jesus restored him. And I believe, uh, of course, what John tells us is that he sent him on a mission to feed my sheep. As we think about our walk and our discipleship with Jesus, I want us to look at Luke and take from Luke's version of this Sermon of Jesus some very practical things that we can take in our walk. I hope this will be helpful to you. Number one, he says, Blessed are you who are poor, for yours is the kingdom of God. Uh, When you find yourself empty, you're in prime position to be filled with the work of God. Uh, The health, wealth, and prosperity gospel don't really dwell too much in Luke chapter 6, verse 20. But Jesus commends those who are empty in some way because nature abhors a vacuum. There's an opportunity. Um, For those who already have their fill, it's difficult to convince them that they need Jesus. Blessed are you who are poor, for yours is the kingdom of God. Those who realize they are spiritually destitute, that they are unable to earn their salvation, that they're unable to do enough good, that they indeed are not good enough. Uh, In our culture, you hear, I'm basically a good person. The Christian says, I'm not. I do some good things, but in measure of God, I fall far short of the mark. Number two, he says, blessed are you who are hungry now, for you shall be satisfied. It's good. It's a wonderful thing to have a spiritual hunger and a desire for the Lord. Uh, I'm sure that you saw in some form or fashion, where you, whether you deeply studied it or just uh, scrolled by it on social media, what was happening at Asbury out in Kentucky. Uh, this talk of revival. If you don't know anything about it, the uh, story goes that Asbury is a college, multi-denominational and all of that. They have a, a daily chapel. And... This particular chapel was not really that special. There was nothing planned or premeditated. Uh, The sermon, the message, the guy that delivered it texted to his wife after it was all done. Well, there was another stinker. He didn't think much of the events of that chapel. but, But something in what he preached... Not maybe in the way he preached it, but the word that he preached from the word resonated with the students. And to the point where uh, there was an invitation to, you know, if you wish to remain and worship and sing some more songs after we're done here, then you may. Ten or fifteen students did so. And that continued 24-7 for the next two weeks. And it, you know, 1,500-seat auditorium was filled with mostly Gen Z confessing sin, pouring out their hearts to God, singing to God. Uh, This was nothing elaborate. There were no lasers. There was no smoke screens. There was uh, no professional speakers. Uh, There were some, you know, after, after it got on the headlines, there were some 
big-name worship leaders who said, I'll go and offer my, my services. And the college rightly but politely declined because this was a, didn't need any extra help from men. Well, what, what the world saw there, I'm not saying I agree with every aspect of it, okay? You can judge it on its own merits. But what, what I saw was a generation that's to some degree, even amongst religious people, we say, oh, whoa, Gen Z, oh, whoa, ah, what's going to happen to the church? What's going to happen to the people of God? But what I saw was a generation just as hungry, just as thirsty for God. And that's a good thing. Anytime you see that, whether it's 1,500 students in an auditorium or a single person, um, one thing that we should always see amongst the people is a hunger to know God and to know God's word and to draw near to him, as James tells us to do. Number three, he says, Blessed are you who weep now, for you shall laugh. Now, I've always thought this a curious one. This is not really one of those verses that people, uh, you know, put onto you know, some fancy artwork or some special thing that they've sewn together. You don't make a blanket out of Luke in chapter 6, uh, verse 21. Because it's not super inspiring. But it's just a simple fact. Um, we've had a couple of funerals here, and I've got another one coming up this week. And it's just always that odd thing when you do a funeral for people of faith, because it's different. In a time when you should be mourning, uh, there's a joy, uh, there's a hope that we have. So, in spite of the things that trouble us, Jesus brings us deeper joy. Number four, blessed are you when people, uh, when people hate you, when they exclude you and revile you and spurn your name as evil on account of the Son of Man. Rejoice in that day and leap for joy, for behold, your reward is great in heaven, for so their fathers did to the prophets. So this is number four. You've got to have courage as a person of God. Uh, Sorry, I, I, I hope I... Number one, you've got to have an emptiness. Number two, you've got to have a hunger. And number three, it, it, it's okay to have tears. Number four, you've got to have courage. Because the world hated Jesus when he got outside his box. And the world still hates Jesus when he gets outside his box. And so... As people of faith, committing to Jesus, surrendering to Jesus, being obedient to Jesus, requires great courage, knowing that, that if we firmly stand where Jesus stood, the same world will hate us, will persecute us. And it's why Christians can rejoice in times of persecution. Then he gets to the woes. Verse 24, he says, But woe to you, you who are rich, for you have received your consolation. A reminder of the story of the rich young ruler uh, who came to Jesus. And he asked the good question, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus gave him a great answer. 
you know the commands, live by those. And he said, great, I've done all of that. And Jesus says, ah, but there's just one thing you lack. Go sell all you have. Now, you can read a story like that and say, okay, what's the threshold? What's, where's the line for net worth before I can no longer follow Jesus? It's not the point. Remember, Jesus is addressing him specifically. And Jesus knew that that man had great wealth, but worse than that was great wealth had him. And so he said, if you're going to follow me, you're going to have to let that go. The idea of being rich is quite the, just the opposite of being blessed to those who are poor. Okay? Again, the, the poor are the people with this emptiness, something that they, they don't have what the world offers. That's a blessing. Okay? And people who are rich, there's not a line, there's not a certain number. It, it's, a, it's a state of being, it's a, state of, it's a mental attitude. A very poor person can be very greedy, can desire money and wealth. And Jesus said, if, if that's all you want, well, you'll get all of that in the world you live in. You have no need of me. But a person with great wealth, and there were several Christians, people of faith, that had great wealth, but it didn't have them. That wasn't enough of a consolation. They've been given great wealth to manage, and they, they do the good that they can with that, but they know what even greater than their worldly wealth and material possessions is Jesus the Christ. And so let us never be satisfied in this world. Let us never be at home here. Uh, and this, when you overlay that with, you know, there's a semi-famous preacher who has a book that says, your best life now. Jesus says, woe to you if your best life is now, because you're way shortchanging yourself. Number six, woe to you who are full now, for you shall be hungry it's the same concept. Again, it's not about caloric intake and all of this. It, it, it has to do it, it has occurred to me how very full our lives can quickly get. How very, very full they can get of empty things. And being full of empty things still leaves you empty. It occurs to me that we, you know, and I'm as guilty as anybody, so no judgment, but how in our world today we've filled every single solitary moment with distraction. I get up, I check my phone, emails, go through that, you know, and I don't even get to enjoy the morning before my brain's already distracted. Uh, I, I go into the 
restroom and I do my morning routine listening to podcasts or an audiobook or, or music. I, I just got to have distraction. I drive down the road listening to something. I, I, I've always got something filling in the gap. And while some of that is inescapable, some of that is a choice. And it's good for us every now and again to have some margin in our lives. To have some space where, we, where we're not fiddling with screens. To have some space where there's not something in our ears. To have some space where there's not something in front of our eyes. There's a blessing in emptiness. There's a blessing because it allows you to have a hunger for that which really lasts. Woe to you who laugh now, for you shall mourn and weep. Uh, Jesus is, you can take this scripture too far. Jesus is not saying there's anything wrong with humor. God gave us a sense of humor. It, it's the idea that we take life too lightly. Here's another way of thinking about it. Do you know people who don't really take their faith seriously? I don't mean that they don't go to church. I mean, like, like they, they might even go to church, but it doesn't really influence and impact their marriage and their business and their relationships. It, it, it's they're, they're in church and they're, you know, checking off the list, but it's making no impact in their life. That's someone I say that's not serious about their faith. It makes no change. It makes no difference. Well, these are people who take life too lightly. Nothing wrong with humor and jokes. And um, I'm a firm believer that God has a great sense of humor. So we're not talking about that. But Jesus is saying, if you take life too lightly, there's going to come a day when you're full of regret over having not taken more seriously the time that God gave you. Number eight, woe to you those, woe to you when all people speak well of you, for so their fathers did to the false prophets. Um, <laughs> I heard a preacher say one time, he said, if you haven't been hated by the world, if you, you haven't been persecuted for being a Christian. You're probably not much of one. And that seemed really intense to me. Like, wow, okay, what are you saying? And I thought about it. You know, if you're a Christian, you're going to stand for some things. There's going to be times when you're not going to bend your knee. Oh, you can be very polite and... And still have a smile on your face, but you're firm, you're resolute, you're convicted. When you do that, the world hates that kind of conviction. The enemy really hates it. But there's another type of way that the enemy works, and that's where he is fills your head with praise. Uh, one of my 
professors in college, I believe, gave me this wisdom. He said, don't let praise go to your head. And don't let criticism go to your heart. Good advice. The, the world <laughs> wants Christians, wants the church to compromise. And is unwise for the church to do so. There are churches that do compromise to be more like the world. And the argument is, if we'll just be more like the world, then we'll be more attractional to the world. We'll bring more people to us. And so they compromise. And you'll see famous religious leaders that get on television for compromising with the world. For going, in some cases, directly against what God says. So they can be well loved for a time by the world. And Jesus says that's not good. Be careful about whose praise you look for. The greatest praise, of course, that you can receive is from your Father God, who says, Well done, good and faithful servant, to the one who's lived faithfully. All right, so. Several things that we can look at there, being a Christian and how that impacts and how that changes your life and what impact it makes. Uh, he gives two other things, and then I want to talk about a tree and its fruit, and it will be done. He says, but I say to you, love your enemies, do good to those who hate you, bless those who curse you, pray for those who abuse you. To one who strikes you on the cheek, offer the other also. And from one who takes away your cloak, do not withhold your tunic either. Give to everyone who begs from you. And from the one who takes away your goods, do not demand them back. As you wish that others would do to you, do so to them. Hmm. A lot of challenging stuff right there. And everything that objects to that is of the nature of the flesh. It's the desire of you that wants to hold on, that wants to fight, that wants to stand up for what's right and have justice and have everything fair. And that's just not the way that God wants us to be. If you love those who love you, what benefit is that to you? For even sinners love those who love them. And if you do good to those who do good to you, what benefit is that to you? For even sinners do the same. And if you lend to those who, uh, from whom you expect to be received, what credit is that to you? Even sinners lend to sinners to get back the same amount. But love your enemies and do good and lend, expecting nothing in return, and your reward will be great. You will be sons of the Most High, for He is kind to the ungrateful and the evil. Be merciful, even as your Father is merciful. And all of these things, loving those who hate you and praying for those who persecute you and offering to be stricken again when one strikes you, and giving to those who beg from you, and, and not expecting to be repaid, and doing to others as you would wish done to you, and loving those who don't love you, and doing good to those who don't do good to you. 
all of that is very, very difficult until I look introspectively and I consider what God has done for me, what God has given me, how often I've been disobedient to God. Hated God. Cursed God. And all the good he's done in spite of myself. And then when I consider what God has done for me through Christ Jesus. How he took every hit, every blow, every whip, every punishment that was what I deserved. When I consider what He did for me, then doing all of these things seems small in comparison. Judge not, you will not be judged. Condemn not, you will not be condemned. Forgive and you will be forgiven. I, I, I realize that the world loves this one verse, this part, just take this, judge not, Judge not. We just really don't even need any of it except judge not. Because that works really well with the world system of values. That's not what this verse says. It's saying being, being consistent. Judge not, you'll be not judged. Condemn not, you'll not be condemned. Forgive and you'll be forgiven. With the measure you use, it will be measured to you, he will say in the latter. Give, and it will be given to you. Good measure, pressed down, shaken together, running over, will be poured into your lap. For with the measure you use, it will be measured to you. What do you want most from other people? Can I ask this uh, rhetorical question? What do you want most from other people right now? You want someone to listen? Truly listen? Really listen? Jesus says, well, You start listening, really listening. You you want someday to give? You go first. You want someone to be merciful, to understand that, yes, you sinned and you certainly fell short and you wish you could undo it, but you can't, but you, you wish that they would be merciful and understanding? Toward you? And Jesus would say, then you be merciful and understanding with others. But the measure you use will be measured to you. We have a ministry that meets on Thursday nights. Hurts, habits, and hang-ups. Where do people get... Wherever they get their hurt from, wherever they get their habits, wherever they get their hang-ups from, there's that old saying that hurt people hurt people. Why is somebody, you know, you're driving down the road and all of a sudden somebody's flipping you the bird and cutting you off and yelling and screaming and you didn't even know you realized you did anything wrong. It has more to do with them than it does you. 
Somebody flies off the handle. Somebody loses their temper. Somebody hurts you. I guarantee you, if you look long enough, you'll see someone who's been hurt. So we know that's true on the negative side. So to counterbalance that, we are to be the people of mercy and forgiveness and love and grace that we expect from others. In other words, be the person that you wish others to be. Start with you. With the measure you use, be measured to you. I don't like judgmental, harsh people. That church is full of nothing but hypocrites and liars and judgmental people. I don't like judgmental people. Those people are judgmental. Do you see the irony here? person hates so much judgmental people, and here they are judging people. It's exactly what Jesus said. You don't want to be judged. Don't be, in other words, say it. If you don't want to be criticized, don't be so critical. If you don't want to be condemned, don't spend all your time condemning. If you want to be forgiven, practice forgiving. Can a blind man lead a blind man into a pit? Uh, lead a blind man, will they not both fall into a pit? A disciple is not above his teacher, but everyone, when he is fully trained, will be like his teacher. Why do you see the speck that is in your brother's eye, but do not notice the log in your own eye? How can you say to your brother, Brother, let me take out the speck that is in your eye, when you yourself do not see the log that is in your own eye? You hypocrite, first take the log out of your own eye, and then you will see clearly to take out the speck that is in your brother's eye. This ties right into it. Here's a good one. Next time you have a disagreement with somebody, next time you have an argument with your spouse, stop and seriously ask yourself the question, where am I wrong? I don't mean asking yourself, like, uh, obviously I'm not wrong here. Where am I wrong? I mean asking yourself, looking for the speck, or in this case, the log. Where am I wrong? Where am I at fault? Put on the other shoe. Try to see it from their perspective. And if you'll genuinely try to do that, it will radically change every relationship that you are in. What Jesus is saying here is look at yourself before looking so critically at other people. Start with yourself. Boy, that changes everything. Okay. So, those are some practical things that when we yield obedience to Jesus, now a lot of times that talk about obedience this morning is just COC talk for you need to get baptized. And I agree with you need to get baptized because Jesus commanded it. But Jesus had a lot more commands than just repent and be baptized. And so as we talked about, obedience is the lifestyle for the disciple. All right, so how do we know? This is it and we'll finish. For no good tree bears bad fruit, nor again does a bad tree bear good fruit. For each tree is known by its fruit. Figs are not gathered from thorn bushes, nor are grapes picked from a bramble bush. The good person out of the good treasure of his heart produces good, and the evil person out of his evil treasure produces evil, for out of the abundance of the heart... His mouth speaks. The question of, are you being obedient? 
the question of being able to discern whether other Christians are living in obedience comes down to the fruit. What is the fruit? I've told you this before, but it fits here. So my grandmother had a, an orchard. It was kind of their retirement project just west of Newton there. Over on Hoover Road, it's no longer there. But they had enough trees to produce a nice harvest each fall of apples. It was interesting to me to go in that orchard in the spring when there were no apples on the trees. You were just seeing buds. But if the trees were healthy and good and weren't didn't give in to the insects and the storms and all of the dangers that the trees face, good fruit would come from good trees. And sometimes, sometimes a tree, for whatever reason, maybe the insects got it, maybe the hailstorm got it, wouldn't produce any fruit. And that tree was good for nothing. Because it didn't do what God designed it to do. So as we live in obedience to Jesus, and as we surrender ourselves, we ought to examine the fruit of our lives. It should manifest itself in everything that we do. Our marriages and our relationships and our work and all the stuff we talked about this morning. We should see the fruit of Jesus and yielding to Jesus in all of that. That is the key to becoming a church that hell cannot stop. Is by being a people living totally surrendered lives the fruit of which we can see, not just for a couple hours here on Sunday, but we see it in all areas of life. So may we look at ourselves. May we live in full obedience to Jesus. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, we thank you that we've had today to not only read your word, which we should do every day, but to meditate and to think on and to discuss and hear and let the word sing deep, sink deeply into our hearts. Father, I pray that as we consider the words of Jesus, hard as they are, that we will yield to Jesus and that we will yield to the Spirit and resist the flesh, crucify the flesh, remove any of ourselves, and our selfish desires, and yield lives that are fully, completely obedient and surrendered to you, Father. Thank you for this time that we've had together. May your word work in our hearts where it needs to work. If there's a need for repentance, may repentance come. If there's a need for obedience, for one to come to the gospel and obey the gospel of Jesus, may that happen as well. If there's need for us to grow, if there's need for us to be producing fruit, may your words yield that fruit in our hearts and in our lives. Father, we thank you for this time of uh, study, and we thank you for the fellowship that we've had today and the worship and the uh, encouragement that we've received from one another. As we close, we continually again lift up our prayer for Dan and Rose, as well as for Greg Martin and his family uh, through the trials that they are currently facing. We thank you, Father, for your love for us, and we thank you mostly for Jesus. And it's in his name that we humbly offer this prayer. Amen.